Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise offering for His Word. You know, His Word washes you, doesn't it? His Word inspires you. And uh, I'm just so blessed to know that the Word of God not just is inspired, but the Word of God is inerrant, the Word of God is infallible, and the Word of God is efficient. For those of you that were able to attend on Wednesday, um, I was so excited about how Pastor Paul Alexander was able to develop that and show us that the inspiration therefore leads to the inerrancy and the inerrancy of God's Word therefore leads to the infallibility of God's Word which therefore leads to the sufficiency of God's Word. If you do not believe the Word is inspired, you will question it. If you do not believe the Word is inerrant, you will judge it. If you do not believe the Word is infallible, you cannot trust it. And if you do not believe the Word is sufficient, you will always have to go elsewhere to find God's Word for you. That's why people will do strange things. They'll go to palm readings and they'll, and they'll, uh, they'll hear voices in their head and they'll believe in dreams and all these strange things. God can do whatever He wants to, but He told us that His Word is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient altogether so. When it says His Word is Han, could you give me my notes? I'm so sorry. I think you walked away with it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, to believe that the Word of God is infallible is to know that the Word of God will never disappoint you. It's infallible. It cannot lead you into error. It cannot misguide you. It cannot allow you, it does not allow you to be deceived in any way. It is infallible in where it takes you. The only fallible part is your faith in it. And it's amazing to see how the Word of God teaches us about the Word of God. That it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, and that it is completely and wholly sufficient. So I don't know if we are able to do this, but um, so we had, I want to introduce this guy to you because, um, you know, I really believe that He's a gift from God to us also at our church. Uh, I call him Professor Paul Alexander. <laughs> I've met all these guys, and the one guy's name is Paul. The other guy's name is Philip. The other guy's name is Matthew. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. What's going on here? <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for Judas to show up. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> we're trying to... <laughs> and so this is, uh, this is actually Paul Alexander. He, he's got his Master's in Divinity. And uh, so Wednesday, he taught us on the inerrancy of the Word of God. Instead of trusting in the infallibility of the Pope and ex-cathedra, we trust in uh, the fact that God's Word does not change ever. And um, we had, um, I think, about 27 and altogether 60 people in the class, or 27 in person. So um, you get to know him better in the future, I believe. Amen. On top of that, I also wanted to, oh, and by the way, Tom and Sarah is with us. I wanted to make sure this, post, this one gets up because there he is, the man from the woods. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Also, I wanted to uh, just mention that a women's ministry called WOW, led by my wife, uh, Women of the Word. The word. I was going to say worth. I'm like, ah, the word, there you go. Women of the Word, uh, 
has started and I think that you're going to be very, very blessed as I see where God is, as I see God is de developing it through Tina. And, um, you know, there's so many charges in the Bible, so many charges in the Bible, and that is simply to say that not only ought we to know Scripture, but we ought to actually live out Scriptures in our lives. Do you know that the Bible is only as powerful as what you give your, as what you surrender yourself to it? Somebody said it this way, in all the hotels around the country, there's a Gideon's Bible in the side of the bed, right? But, but you can imagine all the sin happening in those hotels. <laughs> that Bible does nothing until somebody opens it up and submits themselves to it. And in the same way, I know that God is going to do some great things through, wow, women of the Word as you give yourself to the challenges and the decrees of scriptures. And then, uh, Tina and I started, Tina and I started what we're calling our parental um, system or curriculum. And uh, we are gonna do it video driven. And so I just wanted to make sure you know it's, it's starting to get out there and we'll be posting it, I, I think starting this week. And uh, not only will it be through Radio Church, which will be the first place to find it, but the second place is we'll eventually have it on our website and you'll be able to go through those five-minute videos systematically going through them on parenting, uh, raising your children for God's purposes. Awesome. So we have uh, Nagaland, India. Yeah, online. we have Nagaland, India online. Thank New you Delhi, for joining us. New Delhi, India. New Delhi, India online. God bless Sierra you. Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. Yeah, That's uh, exciting. Yeah. That's in Africa. Yeah. And then we have... Um, and some Americans. We have <laughs> <laughs> right here in Schaumburg. Hey, Schaumburgers. <laughs> and I know that on Wednesday also we have uh, from Qatar, from Dubai, of course, Guatemala, uh, fr uh, Florida. And so um, God is able to reach people in many different ways. Let's pray as we get into this word. Father, I thank you so much for your word that is inspired you are still breathing your word is breathing right now Amen. it is spirit filled carriers of your presence your word is inspired therefore it is completely inerrant you don't make mistakes not a jot nor a tittle will be removed heaven and earth will pass away your word will remain as is as you have spoken it and Amen. as you are still speaking it your word isn't just inerrant, but it is infallible. It cannot lead us into deception. It cannot lead us into, into disaster. It cannot lead us away from you. But it always fulfills that which it was sent forth to do. But your word isn't just inspired, inerrant, and infallible, but also sufficient. We don't have to look beyond it. We don't have to go beyond Scripture in order to find you, to find your will, your wisdom, and your way in our lives. And therefore today, Father, as we look to your word, we know we're hearing from you as we are filled by the Holy Ghost speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. Here we see Christ in word form. Pre-existing the creation in word form coexisting with Father God, existing as God, the Word, Logos, where we get the word logic from. Logos, meaning God's 
reason, God's mind, God's thoughts, God's expressing His view, the word, logos, logic. Christianity is not without reason. It is with God's reason. It's without man's reason. I saw somebody post on Facebook this morning, reasoning is the enemy of faith. Reasoning is the enemy of faith. It was early this morning, so I took a picture because I didn't want them to think I forwarded, I shared it. But I took a picture and sent it to Tina. I'm like, there you go again. Reasoning is not the enemy of faith. Is When we understand God, we have faith in who He is because we understand Him. And so here we have the Word, and the Word became flesh, and Logos became flesh, and God's logic, God's reasoning, God's understanding, God's wisdom walked on the earth in flesh. Pre-existing creation. Nothing was there, and He was. Pre-creation. Coexisting with God the Father, all at the same time, existing as God. And here John says, and God in word form then became, He became, He became flesh. What he is saying is Christ, the Word, became something He wasn't before. He became something He wasn't prior to. Excuse the noise. In other words, he transformed and took on a human form. He transformed out of Logos, or not, didn't diminish Logos, but he went from that form and he took on flesh. And as he did, he entered his own creation. And the Word became flesh. This is what is called the Incarnation. The Incarnation. The most Staggering idea in all ages of humanity. The incarnation. God, the Word, Logos, transformed and took on flesh. God entering His own creation, taking on humanity. The MacArthur Study Bible says it so perfectly, I want to quote this, it says about this statement, Quote, the re this reality is surely the most profound ever because it indicates that the infinite became finite. The eternal was conformed to time. The invisible became visible. The supernatural one reduced himself to the natural. In the, in the incarnation, however, the word did not cease to be God but became God in human flesh. It is the undiminished deity in human form, the undiminished deity in human form, which means he's not 50% God, 50% man. No, he's 100% God, 100% man, all at the same time. He wasn't reduced in deity, and he wasn't exalted in his humanity, but he was both at the same time. If he was exalted in humanity, then he could have come to the place where he felt no pain, especially during the cross, but that wasn't the case. 
He could have come to the place where he was never thirsty, but that wasn't the case. He couldn't come to the place where he was never tired or hungry, but that was not the case. He was 100% God, but still 100% man at the same time. <coughs> and the Word became flesh. This is how Emmanuel, God with us, was realized. Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 14 continues and it says, And dwelt among us. This is a staggering thought. He dwelt among us. The word dwelt here means to live in a tent. <clears throat> or another way of saying it is to tabernacle with us. This term dwelt, therefore, reminds us of when God used to meet with the Israelites in the tabernacle in the desert for 40 years. This was before David and Solomon, right? There was Moses, and he was traveling through the desert with these three million Jews, and they had this tabernacle, and then after Moses traveled through the desert with the Israelites and a tabernacle, then David came, he paid for the temple Solomon, his son, built. So this was the makeshift temple. This was the mobile temple. That's what a tabernacle is. And here is where we need to develop the idea I want to call God dwelling with humanity. God dwelling with us. If this is too small, let me know. God dwelling with humanity. Now, for those of you listening, I'm putting it on a board just so that you know why this <laughs> the moment of silence. And I wanted to show you how God dwelt with humanity from the beginning all the way through now so that when we ask the question, God, are you with us? What do we look to? Because I don't know if you've said this or you've heard this but oftentimes people say how do I know God is with me how do I know God is here how do I know this is not Ichabod God departed already I mean look at the evil in the world look at the evil in our lives how can I what can I point to and say God with us so I wanted to show you from the beginning God dwelled with Adam and Eve, where? In the garden, right? God dwelt with man, Adam, in the garden. And we're going to read that <clears throat> in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Now they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here we see God walking in the cool of the day with Adam, but they were hiding because this time around they had sinned and now their minds had been opened not just to good but also to evil and they saw their nakedness and they became ashamed. The second we see that God dwells with the Israelites in the tabernacle. So I'm going to say Israel God dealt with them where? In the tabernacle. This is going to be very helpful for you when you understand it. Let's just uh, look at Exodus 25, verse 1 through 9. 
The Bible says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Verse 3, These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Now he's going to tell them, telling Moses what he's looking to receive. <clears throat> Not just anything, very specific offerings. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather. Achaia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for, uh, for the fragrance incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Verse 8. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Have them make this sanctuary for me, and here in the sanctuary I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So here we see God saying, make a dwelling. I will be there. We'll call it a tabernacle, a tent. So in this tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. Many are still see seeking for it, making movies, movies out of it. But in the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant within it, there were items like a rod, Aaron's rod. And it was just budding. It wasn't planted. It wasn't watered. It was just budding. It generated life. And every item meant something specific. Also, there was the showbread, like manna. But this ark, they were very, it was very specified how it was supposed to be put together because this is where God would reside in their midst. Where did God reside with Adam? In the garden. Where did God reside with the Israelites? What could they point to to say, here's God with us, was the tabernacle. When they moved with that tabernacle, when they moved with that ark of the covenant, nobody was allowed to touch it. At one stage, you might know the story, as they were traveling with it on poles on men's backs, it almost tilted over and fell. And a man stretched out to save it from tipping over. And the moment he touched it to save it, God killed him. You were not allowed to touch it. No one was allowed to actually see into God's presence. This was holy. It was divine. It was God, never to be touched. And this is where God was going to be and where they were going to meet with God. Israel knew God was with them because the tabernacle was among them. Excuse me for one second. I just need to get rid of all of these. I'm like, why are my pockets so full? <laughs> Every jacket. Thank you, Lord. It's coming to an end. <laughs> Exodus 33, verse 7. Exodus 33, verse 7. The Bible says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, so some distance away. 
calling it the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. This is what they called it. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. So in order to inquire of the Lord, in order to meet with God, where would they go? To this mobile tent called the tabernacle. This is where they had to go to meet with God. Exodus 33 verse 10 speaks of it and it says, Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tabernacle or the tent, they all stood and worshipped. That's where they went to worship, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. This is where he would speak to God. In other words, I want to put this in a nutshell so we get what's going on here. The tabernacle was a mobile tent they erected in the desert for the function of, or that functioned as, the place where God's presence dwelled while He was among them. Israel's place of worship, where they would go to worship. There was a bronze altar for sacrifices in the, for the act of worship in this tent. The place where God would speak to Moses face to face like with a friend. The tabernacle, the place Moses would bring his requests to God on behalf of Israel. The place where Moses would receive direction from God for Israel's sake was at the tabernacle. This is where God was. This is where God dwelt. Now remember, in verse 14 of John chapter 1, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt and tabernacled with us. Number three, after this tabernacle, God dwelt with Israel in Solomon's temple. Now, David wanted to build Solomon's temple, but David had too much blood on his hand, do you remember? So God said, you can pay for it, but your son will build it. It's called the temple. And the temple, I mean, people have come up with numbers, but the temple was this massive structure. May, you know, with gold plate, gold everywhere. And I mean, it's an amazing thing when you read through scriptures as to what they did when they built this temple. People have come up with billions upon billions of dollars today in, uh, that it would be valued in today if it still stood. But it was destroyed in the year AD 70. So here is where God now dwelt. And that was in Solomon's temple. If anybody had to see, is God with us? They would point to the temple. This beautiful structure built by Solomon, paid for by David. This is where they had to go to meet with God. 1 Kings 6 verse 11 says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for the temple you are building, God says, If you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep my commands, and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. Verse 13, And I will live among the Israelites, and will not abandon my people. I will live among them, and I will not abandon them. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The whole entire structure was saturated with God's presence from corner to corner, from the top of its roof to the bottom of its foundation. It was saturated and filled with God's presence. And then, number four, 
we see in John chapter 2, verse 13, that now God dwells with His people. He dwells with His disciples or His believers in Jesus. I want you to zone in, focus in on this verse because I think this is going to be so good for us to get a grasp on this. But John chapter 2 verse 13 says this through 20. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, He saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip. He made it from some rope and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. I mean, can you imagine what this looked like? It looked like a madman just running in there and causing chaos and whipping people and throwing furniture around. Verse 16, then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then the disciples remembered this prophecy from the Scriptures. Quote, passion for God's house will consume me. This is true for Jesus. Passion for God's house. Passion for what? God's house. The temple, remember? He was going to the temple to celebrate with the Jews Passover. When he got there, he saw what was going on. They turned it into a marketplace, consumer Christianity, and he became infuriated throwing furniture around, whipping people and chasing them out of God's house, the temple. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, and here it is. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Amazing. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when, Jesus, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. You see, the resurrected Jesus is the new temple, the new tabernacle, the new garden, where people come to meet God through. In other words, people all over the world will come to God through Christ. This is where, like they worshipped God in the tabernacle in the desert, like they came to hear from God and like Moses spoke to God like a friend, like he got direction from God and where they brought sacrifices and brought their offerings. And this is now where this happens. Matthew 26, uh, 27 verse 51 says, And behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Now, <clears throat> know what happens in this temple is that you have different areas in the temple, right? The second last area is the holy place. The final area is the holy of holies, and this was filled with the presence of God. Anybody who goes there, went in there, would fall down dead. Even the priest, once a year that had to bring the offering, they would tie a rope to his foot. 
and, he's, and the bottom of his robe would have bowels on it. So that when he went into the Holy of Holies to bring God the sacrifice or the offering, everybody would stand outside and hear the bells ring and know that he's still moving. <laughs> he's got this rope around his leg. And if in fact God did not receive that offering because either of the priest for whatever reason, the priest would fall down dead immediately. And when, they, when the bells no longer ring, they would start fishing that priest, that dead priest out of the Holy of Holies. So between the holy place and the Holy of Holies, there was this curtain, the very thick curtain. And, and when you read some commentaries, it was very royal. It was absolutely beautiful. And this curtain was to separate man in his sinfulness from a perfectly holy God. Because the moment they would get in touch with, us, with the holy God, they would, of course, die. But when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and he said, it is finished, and he gave up the ghost, he gave his life, before they, they didn't even have to break his legs, because he already gave himself up and died as a gift for you and I. The moment he gave up his last breath, the Bible says that curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies ripped from top to bottom. God was the one who ripped it from heaven. And immediately, humanity had access into the holiest of holy. Immediately, humanity had access into God's presence because Jesus now is our temple. His flesh was ripped. And because His flesh was torn, you and I now have access to God without dying. For the first time since the fall of man in the garden, for the first time since the fall of man, human beings can now access God's presence once again. Jesus has removed the veil that separated man from God. And then, number five, God dwells today. Let me say Christ dwells today in His temple. Christ dwells today in His temple. Christ dwells in His temple. What is His temple? His body. Who is His body? His church. Let's find it in scriptures. If you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 27. It says this, Christ is like a single body, human body, which has many parts, arms, legs, it is still one body, though, even though it is made up of different parts. Verse 13. In the same way, all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, have been baptized into one body by the same Spirit, and we have all been given this, the one Spirit to drink. Verse 14. For the body itself is not made up of only one part, but of many parts. 
if the foot were to say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not keep it from being a part of the body, would it? Of course not. Verse 16, and if the ear were to say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not keep it from being part of the body, would it? Of course not. Verse 17, if the whole body were just an eye, how could it ever hear? And if it were only an ear, how could it smell? As it is, however, God put every different part in the body just as He wanted it to be. As He decided, as He constructed it. Verse 19, therefore, there would not be a body if it were all, only one part. As it is, there are many parts but one body. There are many parts but one body. So then, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor can the head say to the feet, well, I don't need you. On the contrary, we cannot do without the parts of the body that seem to be weaker. And those parts that think that we think aren't worthy very much are the ones which we treat with greater care. While the parts of the body which don't look very nice are treated with special modesty, covered. 24. Which the more beautiful parts, which the more beautiful parts do not need. God Himself has put the body together in such a way as to give greater honor to those parts that need it. And so there is no division in the body. There is no division in the body. Can you please say that? There is no division in the body. Okay, we're about to put feet to these thoughts, okay? There is no division in the body. But all its different parts have the same concern for one another. All its different parts have the same concern for one another. Very contrary to Western thought, all for themselves. In the body of Christ, it's the exact opposite. They all have the same concern for one another. If one part of the body suffers, all other parts suffer with it. If one part is praised, all the parts share its happiness. All of you are Christ's body. Can we say, all of you are Christ's body. All of you are Christ's body. Okay? All of them are Christ's body. And each one is a part of it. Nobody is separated from it. Each one is a part of it. Caring for one another at their own expense. My hands work to feed my mouth. My feet work to take my body somewhere. My ears work so that I can hear. <laughs> right? Every part of your body does not serve itself ever. It only serves the rest of the body. My heart doesn't serve itself. It serves the rest of my body. My kidneys don't serve themselves. It serves and functions for the body, for the sake of the body. My mind doesn't serve itself. It, serves to, to, it functions to serve my body for the sake of the body. Very contrary to modern Western Christianity. Modern Christianity, which is so disconnected, not, for, not united for the sake of each other, but disconnected for own purposes and their own selfless or selfish needs. So I want to say this, that I am not the church. Nowhere does it say there is an individual that is the church. It says there is a body that is the church and many individuals make up that body. So I, Jacques, I am not the church. I'm a member that fits together with 
that's knitted together with the other members and together form Christ's body on this earth. Together we are Christ's body on this earth, which is God's New Testament church. His body, His church, His temple, this is in which Christ dwells today. God with us. So many people, um, I, I want to read 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Excuse me, I jumped ahead of myself. 1 Peter 2 verse 5, it says this. You yourselves are being built up like living stones into a spiritual temple. Now let's just pause there for a second. When Jesus turned to Peter, he said, you will now be known as Cephas. Your name will now be Peter, Simon. No more Simon. You are now Peter. Why? Because you're a stone. Why? Because you got this revelation. Which revelation was that? That I am the Messiah. And upon this, I will build my church. This revelation that He is God. Now remember, a couple of weeks ago, we shared with different ways to know that God loves you. Different ways to know that God chose you. Let me say it this way. How do you know it? He revealed Himself to you. Like He did to Lydia. He opened her heart and she saw Him and He gave her the ability to respond to Him. And so this is how you know that God's got your number. <laughs> that God foreknew you. He foreloved you. He predestined you. And those whom He predestined, He justifies. He calls. And those whom He calls, He justifies. And those whom He justifies, He glorifies. How do you know you're part of that? Because He revealed Himself to you. Your blind eyes suddenly opened and saw. It was a miracle. Your deaf ears couldn't hear the truth. It thought it was foolishness. But suddenly you heard truth. And you went, why do I... Why did it... Why? These things that I used to th think was foolish, now I love. I, I know, know it to be true. What happened? You got a new heart. A believing heart that now repents. You were made into a new creature. God took, like He took Adam and breathed life into him. He took this dead fallen man and He breathed into him and He became alive. He was born again, second time. This is how you know God has your number. But what I want to show you here is that Peter is talking to those people, the regenerate people, those born-again people, those people with brand new hearts of flesh, hearts that now believe and repent, ears that hear and eyes that see. He's speaking to them and he says, You yourselves are being built like living stones into a spiritual temple. Just like he said it to Peter. He's not saying it to you. This is, these are the stones that he's building his temple with. Those whose eyes are opening and ears are opening and hearts are now responding. Those stones, he's saying it right there. You, first it was just Peter, but now it's you. Yourselves are being built up like living stones, like living Peters, rocks, Cephas, into a spiritual temple. Wow. You are being made into a holy priesthood. Oh, and here's where the Reformation just came apart. 
when the people in the seats were told, you are a holy priesthood. And just like the Pharisees, the priests went, no, they're not. We are the priests. (laughs) No, but here he said, no, no, no. You are a holy priesthood. You are the priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, how? Through Jesus Christ. So, in our postmodern age, in our postmodern age, we have come to a place where this concept right here that I've just outlined on this board is completely foreign. Completely foreign. People now, let me say this, when in Adam's time, how did you know God was with us? Pointed to the garden. When Israel came out of slavery for 40 years, they wanted to know that God was with them. They pointed to what? The tabernacle. When Israel became a, became a nation and they wanted to know that God was in their midst, they pointed to what? The temple. When the disciples walked around in the first century, they knew that God was with us. That the Word became flesh and dwelt tabernacled with us, they pointed to who? Jesus. John the Baptist being the first guy to do it. Ah, there he is. God with us. And now, he says, now you are living stones that form a temple. And if the world needs to know if God is with us, where do they point? To the church. Not to my neighbor who has a fish on their bumper because they might not be part of the church. They might be some ligament all by themselves, loving their lives, living for themselves only. They point to the church. Who's the church? The ecclesia or ecclesia. Who's the ecclesia? Those are the the people who publicly gathered together in His name to worship Him. Go look it up yourselves. It is not a hidden, private, personal. No, it is a public gathering of believers who are called Cephas, living stones, living stones, not a dead rock like your heart used to be, but a living heart, a living stone. And together, They make up the very temple, a spiritual temple. So here in the, I have a few most common mindsets people have who trivialize their commitments to what we now know as the church of Jesus Christ. You'll be, you'll be very familiar with these. The first guy would say, well, you know, I'm a Christian. What you say? You say I'm not a Christian. (laughs) You know that guy. Are you saying I'm not saved? It's like you can't even ask anybody, hey, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. How dare you say that? (laughs) Happens all the time. The first thing is I do not need to go to church. Why? Because I am the church. That's me. I don't need, he doesn't live in buildings anymore. Well, we didn't say Ecclesia was a building. We actually said the opposite. We said Ecclesia was a public gathering of the saints. That's Ecclesia. That's the church. I don't go because 
I am the church. Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 through 27, which we just read, that the church is, in fact, a complete body that's made up of many parts. Working together, not for self, but for everyone else. That's the church. So I am not the church. I'm a member that fits together within members that together form the church on earth, which is God's New Testament temple. God's New Testament temple. Number two, the second thought many people have here or have to, or probably um, have used as an excuse to not be part of His church, is they say, I do not participate in organized religion. How many have ever heard them say that? How many of you have ever said that? <laughs> organized religion is corrupt. Now, I understand that there is a difference between well-oiled cults and faithful family of Jesus worshipers. I understand that there's a difference. Let me say that again. The difference between a well-oiled cult, I think it's a little, this one maybe. Okay. There's a difference between a well-oiled cult and a family of faithful worshipers of Christ. There's a difference. I get that. We should be able to discern that. But unfortunately, those whose intentions are not to serve God, they planning on not serving God, want to pretend that all organized church gatherings qualify as organized religion. And they couldn't be any more wrong. Thank you, Han. So here are a few questions. I think that if that's possibly you that have had that thought in your mind, put by somebody that wasn't of God, here are a few questions for those who have this thought that use this point of organized religion as a reason for being disconnected from the local church body or from his temple, his <laughs> New Testament temple. You have to ask yourself, how organized is my physical body? Could, could my body function in a way, in any way, if it was not accurately arranged? Because it is biblical doctrine to say that the church is functional because it is accurately arranged according to God's will. So for you to say, well, that's organized, therefore I'm going to disqualify it, what are you telling God? Literally, what are you telling God by saying that's organized, therefore it's not of God? Did you know that blasphemy is, de is defined this way? This way and this way only. It's when they accused Jesus, the righteous, of performing unrighteous acts. When they looked at God and said, evil, that is blasphemy. Blasphemy is not when you hit your, hammer, hit your finger with a hammer and out comes a word. That's not blasphemy. Blasphemy is when you look at what is holy and you call it unholy. Blasphemy is also when you look at what is unholy and you say holy. When God said, this is marriage, not that, and you go, nope, that is marriage too. Because it's love. You are calling what is not holy, holy. It's blasphemy. And here is the problem in the church. You know, somebody had asked, what do you do? Why do you point to that issue right there? You know what I'm talking about, right? Why do you point to that issue but not other issues? There are people in the seats 
who might even live together without being married. What? Of course, we all know it's a sin. We all agree it's a sin. They know it's a sin. They agree it's a sin. They know it's not scriptural. They know this is a problem before God. No one is twisting my arm as a preacher saying, Jacques, that couple who live together, call it holy. Nobody is twisting my arm to say what is unholy is holy. Nobody is making me do that. Are you following me? But when it comes to that issue of same-sex marriage, when it comes to that issue, the whole world is, is almost breaking our arms going, Call it holy. Call it holy. We're like, no, we can't. We can't. That's blasphemy. Calling what is holy, unholy, because they said he's, remember they said he was demon possessed? That was blasphemy. You want to say that he did that by the power of Satan? Healing people. That's what they said about Jesus. He did it by the power of the devil. You calling what God did demonic. That's blasphemy. Or you're going to call what the devil's doing, holy, that's blasphemy. The church cannot do that. We'll never do that, the real church. But they'll fight against it. So I hope you understand why there's always an emphasis in arguing the same-sex issue. Because it is, in fact, blasphemous. Nobody is trying to twist my arm, making me declare that adultery is, in fact, just love. It's the wrong person you're loving, but it's still love. It's there for God. Nobody's trying to convince us or force us to condone and affirm what is evil in that regard. But when it comes to the other, yes, they are. So, I do not participate in organized religion, people say. That's why I'm not part of his body. I don't like anything organized. Because there's always corruption and it's evil and it's... Don't call what God is putting together corrupt and evil. That's dangerous. So the first question to ask is, how organized is your physical body that God created? Could your body function in any way if it was not accurately arranged as God arranged it? No, it couldn't. How alive would you be if your body parts were all disconnected? If all your body parts were unorganized? How alive would you be if your body parts love just rotating at random? <laughs> just like those church hoppers. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm here and there and everywhere. Yeah, that's me. It's deformed. What do you think Jesus would say about your excuse to not participate in his body because you once encountered an unhealthy church situation? <laughs> number three you may have heard this the church is full of hypocrites I don't like hypocrites I don't like them so I don't go well, I must say this that of course it is not godly to be a hypocrite I've been one now that I've told you that I've been one at least I'm no longer one <laughs> at least in that in that regard <laughs> but Everyone has played the hypocrite at some point. So, of course, it's not godly to be a hypocrite. 
and we don't condone it, but it is hypocritical to suggest somebody else's hypocrisy is the reason you don't serve God and God's body. That's hypocritical. <clears throat> John 12, uh, 21 verse 15 says this. John 21 15. It says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, how many times did Peter deny Jesus just before this encounter? Three times, right? Watch this. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, in that case, feed my lambs. My people. Make them your concern. If you love me, if you say you love me, Peter, because you said you'll never deny me. Now, if you say you love me, concern yourselves over my people. Verse 16 again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Verse 17, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The third time. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, just to drive this point home the final time, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. It's an amazing thing how we can be so in scriptures in the West and have an anonymous Christianity preached. Churches actually advertise that in our church, you can be, you can be anonymous. You can hide. You can, you can be at the place where nobody would even know that you're not here. That's how low our bar is. And so, you be the one caring for everybody else. How are you going to be anonymous when that's you? <laughs> how are you going to be anonymous if you're the one Loving on people, supporting people, praying for people, looking after people, checking up on people, serving people. The body is to know Him and to be known by Him. To know people and to be known by them. To know and to be known. So Jesus is saying that our love for Him will cause us to care for His church, not criticize His church. For those people who say, ah, it's full of hypocrites, I don't go there. I don't like hypocrites. This is Jesus' charge to them. It's I ask you to love them, to care for them, not criticize them. I would say this about, I would say this about hypocrites. A person who runs to Christ and throws themselves at Christ's feet and at Christ's requests... Those who love Christ are the most honest person, the most honest people you will ever meet. Because they're the ones that know they need Him. Those who don't, who pretend that they don't need a Savior, that's the problem. So hypocrisy actually goes the opposite than what people say it goes. Those who don't need Him pretend that they're okay, and they know that they're not. Number four, a person who says, I don't believe the church is essential. We've heard that a lot. We've lived through it. 
So we have, number one, people who do not need to go to church because they are the church. Then they have people who don't believe they need to participate because they are offended by organized religion or opposed to it. Then we have people who say they don't go to church because church is filled with hypocrites. But number four, I don't believe the church is essential. I want to show you 1, Peter, 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. We're coming in for a landing. It says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. In God's house. I mean, there it is. In the New Testament, God's house. Not the household of God, many translations say. That's an incorrect translation. It's the house of God. Who is the house of God? His collective body is the house of God. No, not bricks and mortar. His collective body is the house of God. And he's saying right here, but I, if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. In this body, in this temple, made up of many members collectively. Because believers are God's house. You, collectively, are God's house. Because God lives in us. We share of the same Spirit. He says, Alright, so that you may know that you ought to not, how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. That is the church. The church isn't in a city, in the east, or in Rome, or in Florida somewhere. The church is the collective body. Believers fitting together like living stones. It says the pillar and ground of the truth. So let's read that whole verse and then see what it, how it defines the church. From the top it says, but if I'm de delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, His temple, the very pillar and ground of truth. That is what the church is. He just defined for you and I what it means to be part of the church. The church is what? The pillar and the foundation of truth. You see, this church, the house of God, this temple, this tabernacle, which is filled with God's presence, is called the pillar and the foundation of truth. Pillars and foundations hold things up. Pillars and foundations hold things up together. That house stands. Why? Because it has a foundation and it has pillars. And, and he's giving us a great picture of what the church does in the world. It holds up truth. God's truth. Not man's subjective truth. So the real church of God, not, not the false one, but the real church is responsible for holding up and maintaining God's truth. Collectively, we hold up and collectively we maintain God's truth. So somebody that says, I don't believe the church is essential, is somebody who thinks truth is not essential. And then verse 14 continues and it says, And we saw His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus was the fullness of both. He's the fullness of grace and He's the fullness of truth. Just like He was 100% God, 100% man at one time, so He is 100% grace, also 100% truth at one time. 
That means he was full of grace, pardoning, justifying, adopting, sanctifying, forgiving, and preserving he, those who belong to him. But he's also full of gospel truth. The fact that God's wrath was swallowed up in the sacrifice, he's wrath against man's sin. You see, in other words, he has goodwill toward man, while at the same time, complete faithfulness toward God. He will never become unfaithful to God in order to show man goodness. He is full of grace and full of truth, both at the same time. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. He still does. Amen. Amen. And we see His glory, glory as of the Son of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word.